If you'll open your Bibles, please, to the Gospel of John, there are four Gospels. I'd like you to open your Bible in the fourth and final Gospel. And if you're unfamiliar with the term, Gospel is more than a genre of music. Genre is a gospel, is a genre of literature first and most. It literally means good news. And in the Bible, we have four gospels, four accountings of good news. John, the one I'm directing you to, was written by an eyewitness of John's life. And we're going to be in John 1. We're also going to read a little section in another gospel called Matthew. And we're going to look at a section in Luke chapter 3 as well. Three Gospels, but all orbiting around the same person. And in John's Gospel, what I wanted to show you is this simple literary feature. In John chapter 1, the editors, because this was written in Greek some 2,000 years ago, not written in English, At that point in people's writing, words were pushed together. Paragraphs and indentation as we know it had was yet far from invented. But the editors and the translators of the Greek New Testament have helped you see something important to John's gospel. The first 18 verses are in a section all of their own in every Bible I've ever seen. There's a good reason for that. Bible scholars call the first 18 verses the prologue to John's gospel. It's going to tell you the Christmas story from the point of view of heaven. It's going to begin not on earth. You'll see no mangers, no shepherds, no angel choirs. You're actually going to see the throne room of God in the very first verse. And the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And John will tell you both in this gospel and in the first letter he wrote that he was an eyewitness to these events, that he's not telling you as Luke is, as a historian and an investigator, what happened He was an eyewitness to most of the events he speaks of in his gospel. As you keep reading, it becomes very evident that John is talking about Jesus. Verse 14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, John says, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So there's the cosmic and the earthly, 13 verses apart. John is telling you the Christmas story from the point of view of heaven. He's telling you about Jesus who was always there, who was always alive, who was always with God, who is God himself, who has been there unlike the rest of his creation, who was there from the very beginning. But I'm showing you this because I want to tell you the Christmas story over the next two weeks from John's gospel, but in chronological order, not in the order in which John wrote it. In other words, we're going to come back to the passage I've just been showing you next week. Right now, I want to show you what John wrote next, beginning in verse 19. In verse 19, John, the gospel writer, the disciple of Jesus, the commercial fisherman that Jesus chose as one of the original apostles, begins talking to you about another John. His name and nickname 
is John, but this has a nickname beside. He is John the Baptist. And I can see you've read your Bible already. You already knew where this was going. And someone, forgive a corny preacher joke. It's not John the Presbyterian. It's not John the, ba- it's not John the Methodist. Now, I, I hear the resistance, and you're right. You're completely right. That's completely out of bounds because the nickname, and it's important for you to understand this, is not a denominational label. The nickname is actually John the Baptizer, John the one who baptizes, as he's going to explain. Now, why is John so prominent in the story of Jesus' life? Why is his story woven through several of the Gospels. That's why we're going from Gospel to Gospel, so that you can see the arc of John the Baptist's life. The reason is this. Jesus made a surprising claim about John the Baptist, and it's one that Americans should easily resonate with because we love to make lists and have arguments and write articles about who and what is the greatest. I'm a football fan, and years ago, it's actually one of the fa- my favorite things I've ever seen on TV, the National Football League set itself to the task on its channel of making short little five-minute videos chronicling the careers of what, in the editor's opinion, were the top 100 football players, and they would give it to you about five at a time. And as you went through that list, the greatness just got greater and greater as you went. Americans will make a list, write an article, have an argument about just about anything, and it's so important to us to have the discussion about who the greatest of all time is, whether it's a musician or a sports team or you name it, uh, you know, insult the state that somebody's from and see what happens. Texans will defend Texas to the point of basically reminding people that Texas was once a republic of its own. Uh, Texans put their flag on their houses even when they relocate to California. We love knowing, defending, arguing about who the greatest is, so much so that we've even made up some recent slang. We talk about the goat. And the goat is not a barnyard animal. The goat in this case is, you know, what, what does the goat mean in common parlance? The greatest of all time. I'm so glad I didn't have to explain that. You're more with it than a very funny video I saw. Probably a late middle-aged lady, a school teacher. Her students were calling her the goat. And in the video, she was mortally offended and threatening them with all kinds of disciplinary measures because she thought they were calling her a goat, not calling her the goat. They were trying to tell her she's the best teacher we've ever had. We think you're the greatest of all time. She thought they were calling her a barnyard animal, and understandably was upset. Why am I telling you all this? Because believe it or not, when it comes to talking about who the greatest person, ordinary person, aside from Jesus himself to ever live, if you want to have that discussion, if you want to make that list, believe it or not, Jesus has already settled the question. Look at what Jesus said in Matthew 11, verse 11. In fact, you can read it with me. These are the words of Christ. And he said, Truly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. The greatest man, that's a Jewish idiom, among those born of women. But if you, we can read through that of 
people who have ever lived, we might say, the greatest of all time, there's no one greater than John the baptizer. Why would that be? Look with me in John chapter 1, verse 19, and I'll try to show you. And the reason I'm sharing this with you is not to show you a piece of Bible trivia or give you a slice of Bible history, but rather to show you the greatness of John's character so that we can imitate it, so that we can take from this extraordinary man lessons to apply to our own discipleship, our own following of Jesus. John chapter 1, verse 19 says, And this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? John, the gospel writer, has already given you a preview of who John is. Look back up in verse 6. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. Notice, John was not sent so that people would believe in him. John was sent to talk about someone else so that all would believe through him. John, the gospel writer, wants to be abundantly clear about that. He says in verse 8, he was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. And as John begins to unfold the prologue, it's obvious he can only be talking about Jesus. That's the view from heaven. John, this is a beautiful literary choice. John has, like a good pitcher, has started with his best stuff. He's given you the high heat with the first pitch. He's given you the view from heaven that Jesus is eternal and yet is going to live on the earth among ordinary men like John himself. And then he backs up and tells you chronologically how John prepared the way for Jesus. Verse 19, this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, no, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And it's hard for us to appreciate it, but there's death in these questions. If you look down at verse 24, it says they had been sent from the Pharisees. This is the same religious machinery, in other words, that's going to murder Jesus in just about three years. John is easing you into the life and the ministry of Jesus, this eternal word who was always God, who was always with God, who was always beside God, but now has come to live among us. The story of Jesus began with a man who was sent just ahead of him. His name was John. He gave witness to the light, John says, but he was not the light himself. But his preaching had caused such a stir that an official religious investigation is taking place. Notice, the Pharisees, verse 19, sent priests and Levites. In other words, the top of the religious hierarchy came down from Jerusalem marched all the way down the hill from Jerusalem to find John in the wilderness to ask him one question, who are you? His answer, simple, I'm not the Christ. 
Are you Elijah? Are you the prophet? No, no, no. Who are you then? Verse 23, what do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord as the prophet Isaiah said. And there he is quoting the book of Isaiah written 700 years before John or Jesus were born. He's quoting Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. Now, John would be the first to tell you, and I just read you, his repeated affirmation, he is not the Christ. He's not the light of the world. He's just the one who's going to bear witness to tell people who the light is, where the light can be found. Why then study as we approach Christmas? Why take time to spend any church service contemplating the life of John the Baptist? Because Jesus said, among ordinary people, John was the greatest man to ever live, and I think as I read his story, I can find three keys to his character, three commitments that flowed out of John's heart that made him the greatest man according to Jesus. And here's the first. John always found his identity in God's promises, in God's word, not in the public pressure that was always around him. Notice again how he answered the question. Verse 22, we need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, and all he does is quote the Bible. I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord as the prophet Isaiah said. Now, John is an extraordinary person. I'm not trying to convince you into the ridiculous idea that you need to be a new John the Baptist. He was extraordinary. His birth was miraculous. Everything around his life was extraordinary. But the choices he made can be made by anyone who follows Jesus. And the first and perhaps the most important is here. John found his identity not in his success. He didn't cave to the public pressure that was always around him. He found his identity in what God had said, in the promises that God had made him, not in anything else. If you want to Walk faithfully with Jesus for the rest of your life. Base your self-concept not on what you say to yourself, not what the culture tells you about yourself, not what other people tell you about yourself. You find your identity and rest in what God has said about you. Then and only then you will be safe. I think there's a couple temptations that every disciple faces. The first, Pastor Jim taught me this phrase, is a self-styled faith. You see, when we argue about teams and artists and musicians and bands and who the greatest may be, anybody who's on a list, particularly like a musical artist list, if they are in the conversation of the greatest of all time, what has happened without fail is they have reinvented themselves and renewed themselves and become fresh and interesting probably several times over a long career. Not Christians. We're never called to reinvent ourselves. We have one pattern. His name is Jesus. Our faith is just as narrow and just as broad as He is. He's the example. He's the Savior. He's the teacher. He's the Lord. He's the counselor. He's our guide. He's our word. He's our promise. We set our identity and set our steps 
in imitation of him. And that's what we see John doing here. John is relying upon scripture. This is massively important because we're all swimming in our present day culture. We're all swimming in an ocean of input. This might seem like a strangely specific and random application, but those of you who are young enough to be using or have children who are young enough to be using social media, be very careful with the ideas that are found there. One of the most influential things in the world right now, according to anybody you ask who knows what, how powerful that platform is, is a little tech, a little tech company called TikTok. What's TikTok? TikTok is a platform populated by untold millions of people who generate content. They are shaping opinion. They are setting moods. They are providing alternate facts and different kind of truths about everything in life, all the way from recipes to the very existence of God. It's all discussed. It's all thrashed out on TikTok, and it is massively influential. We've gotten to the point, with, especially with younger people, if I know they're heavy social media users, when they start confiding with me about their anxiety and their stress, the very first thing I talk to them about is how and how much they use social media. It's massively influential. And the temptation for that is, and I've seen it more times than I'd like to admit, is in the genius of a well-produced 30-second, two-minute video a lifetime of truth that is based on Scripture and built in carefully by parents can be chipped away at so that six months later, if they keep swimming in that stream, they believe and feel themselves to be very different from the person who watched that first video. That tempts people to what Jim calls a self-styled faith. In other words, you choose in your own version of following Jesus, you treat the Christian faith sort of like a cafeteria. And you take the parts you like and you leave the other things behind. John never did that. I'm going to show you across the Gospels, he never changed. He was an ordinary person. And I'm going to show you he had fears, he had doubts, but he never changed. He found his purpose, he found his authority in Scripture, not himself. The second temptation I could call compromise and John teaches me this, neither opposition nor success changed John's message one iota. Anybody who ever spoke about Jesus would love to have the crowds and have the impact that John did, and he didn't change a bit. His message was always the same. It didn't matter who was in front of him. He always told them the truth. He neither made it stronger, nor did he weaken it, depending on who was standing in front of him. And that teaches me something else that's very practical, if I could be pastoral with you for a moment. As we work through our view of John's life, you're going to see him face adversity and use a great deal of courage in answering his opponents. You're actually going to see him enjoy a great deal of success as crowds throng around him. I've noticed then that there are two things that shake a person's walk with Christ, and they're opposite. Sometimes it's adversity. More often, it's success. In my opinion, success has ruined the faith of more Christians 
than suffering. Most Christians have the grace and the humility when life is very hard to run to Jesus and throw themselves upon His mercy. It seems that a greater temptation is to be granted gifts from God, is to be given success, is to have those prayers answered. Then sometimes, unfortunately, and I include myself in the diagnosis, sometimes we become like little children at Christmas time. We become so enthralled with the gifts that we turn our back on the giver. I'll never forget when I was probably, I don't know, probably only 17 or 18 years old, but I now recognize that my parents in Mexico even then were preparing me for ministry, I noticed that a family in our church that had been very faithful was suddenly gone. And the story started coming back. Not only had they walked away from the church, they seemed to be walking away from their faith, their values, the way they were living their life, very, very different from the people we enjoyed for years. And I asked my parents about it. It was one of the most meaningful conversations I've ever had, and I'm giving you the benefit of the conversation now. They explained to me that this family had worked very hard and prayed diligently and humbled themselves and sacrificed, been generous givers, faithful workers. They had done everything they should while they also prayed fervently to God for God to grant them a certain blessing and a certain success professionally. Then he did, and it seemed to ruin them. It was then when they began to enjoy God's blessings they wandered away from him. So my question to you is this. What's more threatening to you right now in this season of life that you find yourself in at this moment? Are you more prone to being doubtful and fearful in your walk with Jesus because you're discouraged? Or are you in a season of success that may tempt you to step back and admire your own work, take credit for the blessings that God gave you? Be very mindful of that and take the next step with Christ because our identity, our purpose is found in God's Word, not in our circumstances, not the public pressure or the God-given success that He may grant us. Go back with me to John chapter 1, please. In John 1, verse 23, here's the core of John the Baptist's testimony. I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. This is John's second commitment. This is what made him an extraordinary person. Not only did he find his identity in what God said about him, once John heard what God said, he, number two, obeyed God without exception. He was consistent in obeying God in every single way. In terms of our Christianity, many Christians try to treat their obedience to God like a battleship. See, a battleship is very, very ingeniously engineered. It has all kinds of individual watertight compartments so that if a battleship suffers damage... Those individual compartments can be flooded. They can even be flooded on purpose to keep the whole ship afloat. All of those different compartments mean that if one part of the vessel is damaged, the whole thing can still be safe. Many people treat their Christian faith like that. They'll have whole compartments of their life in which Christ is not welcome, in which Christ cannot reign. I'm going to suggest to you that your life is not a battleship. Your obedience to God is more like a raft. 
because a single breach threatens the whole thing. If you tolerate, if you knowingly tolerate one area in your life where you willfully disobey God, all everything, everything else where you think you are solid is actually also at risk. In John's life, I learn in Luke chapter 3 that I see his consistency, his obedience to God without exception in two particular ways. First of all, John kept in step with God's timing, and here's the advice for us. Keep in step with God's timing rather than forcing your own. Let me ask you, because I think I'm among fellow strugglers. When you have a problem or a situation in which you need God to intervene, do you ever try to force the timing? Get Him to speed up? I do. When would you like your prayers answered? Now. See, everybody said now. Here's my answer. Yesterday. Not now. I'd like today. I'd like today to be the praise report and, you know, and the thanksgiving unto God because He already answered yesterday. It's not coincidental that one of the, part of the fruit of the Spirit is patience and self-control. People who are walking with Jesus are chronically tempted to tell Him to either speed up or slow down. John never did that. Let me show you Luke chapter 3. Now let me show you every part of the Bible matters, even the part that reads like a footnote. Luke chapter 3, verse 1. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Idorea and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. Did you follow all that? It's a lot of names, isn't it? It's a lot of places. What's going on here? Well, every detail in the Bible matters. What Luke is telling you with the care of a historian is he's pointing to something specific that John did at a very specific time in history. Verse 1 tells you the Roman hierarchy that ruled over Israel. Verse 2 tells you about the Jewish, the Jewish religious leadership that was in charge of Israel at that time. At that specific time in history, and only then we read the Word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah in the wilderness. And when the Word of God came to John in the wilderness, verse 3 reports, He went into all the region around the Jordan proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Keeps quoting. Every valley shall be filled, every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of of God. Close quote. That's John's preaching, and it only started when the Word of God came to him. John knew from childhood what his purpose would be. John was a Nazarite. John was miraculously born. An angel heralded his birth 
in a way that is reminiscent of a, the way a whole choir of angels would sing over the birth of Jesus. John has known his whole life that God has set him uniquely aside for great things, but John doesn't move and start preaching until God's Word tells him to do so. Please keep in step with God's timing. Jesus knows timing best. The time where He has you waiting might be some of the most beneficial in your whole life. Trust the Lord with it. Do not force your own timing. As I read John's preaching, I find the second thing that made him such a consistent man in obeying God's Word. John applied God's truth consistently. He was never selective about it. He would tell everyone in his audience just exactly what they needed to hear with no favoritism. Let me give you a flavor of his preaching. Look with me in Luke 3. We've reached verse 7. Let me tell you what, let me ask you what you think of his preaching. Ready? He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. What do you think about it so far? You imagine that next Sunday? I get up here and say, well, you bunch of snakes, who taught you to slither away from the fire that's coming upon you? I mean, this is strong stuff. Why? Because John has been sent ahead of Jesus. If I could use another sports analogy, John's the lead blocker, not the ball carrier. He's only going to prepare the way. He knows he's not the man. He knows he's opening the path for the man, and what this crowd needs under Roman oppression and under the false teaching that their leaders had devolved into where they had supplanted the Word of God with their man-made traditions, John knew that God had sent them to turn around, to literally make a U-turn, to repent, in other words, to realize they had been going the wrong way, make a 180, and then the invitation was, be baptized, publicly identify with this repentance. John is not asking them to believe in him, but to believe in his message. To publicly identify their repentance and their belief in John's preaching that the real Savior is coming by being publicly baptized by him. Verse 8, he's calling for life change based on real repentance. Because if you really repent, your life will really change. Verse 8, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And now he's going to go right down the list of three kinds of people he knows are in his audience. He knows there's religious Jews in his audience who have great confidence in their heritage. He knows that there's tax collectors who are Jews who have forsaken the word and the law of God and actually corrupted themselves and sold out to the Roman government to charge taxes from their countrymen to enrich themselves, to finance the Roman army. And even Roman soldiers are coming to hear John. He's an immensely popular preacher and he tells each group what they need to hear. Verse 8, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. Do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Don't be proud of your heritage. God can make kids out of rocks if he wants to. Judgment is coming, John says. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. 
That's hard preaching. That's a clear warning. It had a good effect. The crowds asked him, what then shall we do? And he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, and we, what shall we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation, and be content with your wages. As the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water. But he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. The lead blocker never forgot his role. If you know anything about football, you know the man who is opening the way does not care if he makes it to the end zone. All he's hoping for is that from his position on the turf after throwing his block, he can look up and see that the team scored because the ball carrier made it. This is John's ministry. He is completely reliant on God. He is obedient to God. And before you think, this doesn't do me much good because John's superhuman. Let me show you the low point of his life in Matthew chapter 11. Because sometimes Christians, hearing about other believers who have greatly dared to obey God, know themselves to be so different that they check out of that race before they've even started it. Matthew chapter 11. The ministry of Jesus now is in full swing. Jesus has been so successful and so fruitful, he's actually appointed and sent out 12 apostles to take his message to other places. Verse 11, uh, chapter 11, verse 1. When Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now, when John heard, this is John the Baptist, John the Baptizer, when John heard in prison about the deeds of Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? Let me ask you. Let's be honest with the Bible and not give the pat Sunday school answer. Are you surprised by the question? I am. The first time I noticed it, it rocked me. The one who found his identity in Scripture, the one who quoted Isaiah, the one who preached fearlessly to the religious and to Roman soldiers who could have killed him where he stood, at a different point in his life, sent his disciples to ask Jesus, are you really the one? Should we wait for somebody else? Now, why is that? Well, I think the answer is found in a single word in verse 2. Do you notice where John is? He's in prison. Suffering has a way of making people doubt what they've known all their lives. Success ruins Christians. Extended deep suffering can really damage their discipleship as well. I want you to see the humanity, the frailty, the weakness of John the Baptist. 
after a lifetime of preaching, of fearless, unrelenting obedience to God, of complete integrity, where he would preach the same hard message to anyone who was in front of him, whether they were the religious establishment or the outcast or the soldier or the tax collector. John was always and consistently the same, but in, John, in Matthew's gospel, I read that he seems to be filled with doubt. He seems to be wondering whether he's actually thrown his life away and misused all of his energy. Listen to Jesus' patient answer. Verse 4, Jesus answered them, go and tell John what you hear and see. Jesus is going to speak about proof, in other words, and this is beautiful. Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear and the dead are raised up and the poor have good news preached to them and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. What did John do here? Here's what we should do when we're suffering. Take your doubts to Jesus and stay faithful. You will have doubts. You will have questions. The harm done by others, the suffering of your life, difficult circumstances may make you question what you have always believed, what you have even taught to others. When those doubts come, take them to your beautiful, all-sufficient Savior. Let Him comfort you. Let Him reassure you, and you stay faithful. That's the second commitment, that John was relentlessly obedient to Jesus even in his moment of fear and doubt in prison, he went back to Jesus and made sure that he should stay the course. The final thing I find in John's gospel is simply this, and this is the most well-known part of John's ministry. If you look with me again in John chapter 1, we've reached the end of this story, the end of this paragraph telling us about him. Verse 25, they asked him, why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethlehem across the Jordan where John was baptizing. Notice the humility this powerful preacher said, I'm only telling you about a greater man who's coming behind me. He's so important. He's so magnificent. I'm not even worthy to stoop down and unbuckle his sandal. If you think about it, that's a pretty menial task. But John the Baptist said, I'm not even worthy to do that for him. Here's the heart of John's ministry, and we can all take this to heart for ourselves. Number three, make yourself small so that Jesus can be made great. As John explained in John chapter 3, verse 30, he must increase, but I must decrease. If you want to take a single slice of Scripture home with you to put into practice this week, make it this one. In fact, would you read this with me, please? John said, he must increase, but I must decrease. Read it a second time. He must increase, but I must decrease. That's the beauty of John the Baptist. That's why Jesus said he was the greatest man to ever be born. 
Matthew chapter 11, verse 11, Jesus said it, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. But let me show you something. I only read you half the verse. Just so you know, this isn't a history lesson. I want you to read the end of Matthew chapter 11, verse 11. Jesus said, truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Read the second sentence with me, please. Yet the one who is the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Now, who's in the kingdom of heaven? We are. See, and this is hard to fathom. Though we're not particularly important and not particularly impressive, you share a privilege, you and I share a privilege that John does not and never can. We're born on the other side of the cross. John was murdered before Jesus was. We can look back at a bloody cross and an empty grave and we can know ourselves for sure to be in the kingdom of heaven. We have the gift and the ministry and the life of the Holy Spirit. God calls you His own beloved son, His own beloved daughter. If we will take John's attitude and make sure that we get smaller so that Jesus can be seen as great as He actually is, we'll become like John and even according to Jesus, greater than He. Our message is the same as John's. John's preaching in John 1.29 is simply this, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's a pivotal moment. That's a hinge in John's gospel because John chapter 1 verse 19 all the way through 28, you're hearing about John's preaching. You're hearing about John being questioned. You're hearing about John's own self-identity, what he knew about himself based on the Bible. But one day, John 1.29 says, John the Baptist saw Jesus and stopped everything and said, there he is. That's the one. The one I've been preaching about, the one that Isaiah wrote about, that is he. That is the Lamb of God, and he takes away the sin of the world. Crosspoint, that's our message. That's why we're inviting you to pray and to courageously and humbly invite people to come to church with you during Christmas. All we want, we don't want to put on a show, we don't want to have a traditional celebration. We just want to point to Jesus, the greatest purpose any of our lives can have is simply this, to point people to Jesus. If you will make sure that in your estimation and in your behavior, you're trying to make yourself little so that people can see how great Jesus is, you'll live well. You'll serve the Lord. You'll please the Lord, and it will all be worthwhile if we will only take our cues from this great man who was not great in his own estimation. He was great only because he continually kept pointing to Jesus. We can do the same. Let's make sure that we actually do it. Would you pray with me, please? Two questions for two groups of people. The first is the most important. If you're not quite certain that you're a disciple of Jesus that Jesus has taken away your sin. John said he could take away the sin of the world, but if you're not sure that Jesus has taken your sin away, can I invite you to do what John said and repent? Make that U-turn, give up on your own ideas, 
Stop trying to save yourself and entrust yourself to Him. It takes humility to say that you've been wrong and Jesus is right. To agree and confess to Him that you cannot save yourself and you humbly ask Him to do it. If you're not certain, if your spirituality is just a I hope I'm forgiven. I hope I'm at peace with God. If it's not an I know I'm at peace, I know I'm forgiven, my invitation to you right now is to pray to Jesus and ask Him to save you. And if you do that, take a moment and a card in the seats near you. Leave it in a box with us. Let us know the step you've taken. We want to follow up with you. We want to celebrate with you. The second question is for Christians. Everything in our culture and everything in our ego is continually pushing us to make ourselves as big as we can be. The gospel says that's a losing idea. The best thing a disciple can do is point to his Lord. The best thing someone saved can do is point to his Savior. I want to invite you this week to consciously take steps to make it less about you and more about him and see what the Lord does in your place and in your life. Lord Jesus, make it so. May we who follow you make less of ourselves so that you can be seen in all your grandeur and glory and goodness. And if there's a single person here, Lord, in this third service who does not know you as Savior, I pray that right now they would turn to you, tell you they're sorry for their sins, and you at, they ask you to save them. I pray that in Jesus' name, and Cross Point says with me, amen.